Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a prominent IOC critic says it's business as usual for the IOC, as evidenced by the decision on the 2026 Winter Olympics. Also, after facing criticism for shutting up the families of fallen soldiers, the Canadian Forces plans to rededicate an Afghan war memorial. Plus, a new study looks at why taxing the rich doesn't seem to generate the sorts of new revenue that proponents promise it will deliver. The host is... Milano Cortina. Well, there were cheers, presumably from the uh, winning city, although I'm not totally sure. I, I guess the cheers are probably uh, music to the ears of the IOC, because otherwise this was a, a really pathetic competition, in all honesty. To come down to two bids, uh, two bids from, from regions where it wasn't convinced that people were really behind this. Of course, Calgarians made their voices heard in a plebiscite last fall. So I think the announcement this week of the 2026 Winter Olympic House City, to some, is maybe a reminder of what could have been. But I think to a lot of people, it's just a reminder that the Calgary dodged a bullet here. That we're probably better off uh, not having gone down this path. It'll be interesting to see how things work out in Italy with this bid. But in terms of whether the IOC is really moving in a new direction... And I think that's what a lot of Olympic proponents really tried to sell us during this whole process. But this is new. This is different. This isn't the uh, you know, bloated, corrupt IOC. This is an IOC that's prepared to embrace reform. And that somehow, if we had stayed in the process, we could have helped that reform along. Others, not so sure. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on all this, very pleased to welcome back to the program, uh, Christopher Dempsey. He was the founder, former co-chair of No Boston Olympics, co-author of the book No Boston Olympics, How and Why Smart Cities Are Passing on the Torch. Chris, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Rob, always a pleasure to be on with you. Uh, You were not at all surprised that this Italian bid prevailed. Why is that? Well, I'm one of the many that months ago predicted that Milan would beat out Stockholm in the bid. And that has nothing to do with what's a better city or who can throw a better party or who has better food or is more welcoming. It's none of those questions. It, what it comes down to is the incentives in place. And as you were saying, the International Olympic Committee has promised many cities, including Calgary, including Boston, when we were going through our own debate in 2015 on the pros and cons of the Olympics, the IOC has promised that it's different, it's changed, it's reformed, that it's no longer just going for the old model of bids where the costs are thrown onto taxpayers and they're responsible for the cost overruns. Well, the IOC had a choice yesterday. They could have chosen a Stockholm bid where there was no taxpayer guarantee, where the events actually would have been privately funded, and the cost overruns would not have fallen on taxpayers. But instead, they chose the bid for Milan, which had the guarantees that taxpayers would pick up the cost overruns. And so those of us that know the IOC and have been watching this process, we predicted Milan months ago simply because of that, because Mm -hmm. the IOC has not truly reformed. They've not truly changed. They are still the old IOC, and they're continuing to ask, taxpayers to pick up the bill for their three-week party well yeah and the vote wasn't even really all that close was it no it was about 60 percent for milan 40 percent for stockholm i thought one one thing that was particularly interesting is that an ioc member from sweden got up to sort of make the case 
for Stockholm. And she said, look, if we're serious about reform, if we're serious about what the IOC calls Agenda 2020 and the new norms, those are the names that they've given to their reform process, well, then Stockholm is a clear choice. And she said that, and then just minutes later, the IOC rejected her language, rejected her bid, and instead went with a very traditional bid that is likely to go hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, over budget. Well, then should we be surprised, though? Because if the IOC wants to convince the world that they have changed, if they want to convince other cities to be competing for future Olympics, that wouldn't have made sense then to, to go with that Stockholm bid. So what, why didn't they? Well, I think, you know, one of the problems here is that there's not a lot of transparency in the process. And you'll probably remember a lot of that from what happened in Calgary, where the boosters behind the bid were promising it would be transparent and open. And then when members of the press like you or members of the public or even city council members asked for more information and for more details, those were often hard to come by. And even up to the final votes of the city council on whether to move forward with a plebiscite, some of those questions, they still couldn't pry details out of the bidding committee. One of the things that the bidding committee says is, well, we need to keep these details private for competitive reasons because we're, we're competing against other cities and we, want, we don't want them to know our secrets. And that's exactly what they said in Boston. The IOC uses that to their advantage. Again, they talk about this like it's a competition, that the best city will win. But I think a different way to think about their process is it's really like an auction, where they're up front with the gavel and they're trying to get as many bids as possible and have those bids be as high as possible and as lucrative as possible for the IOC. And it's really the taxpayer and those host cities that are bidding up that price and holding the bag at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. The fact that there were just two cities standing, though, at the end of all of this, that's certainly something that's becoming more the norm, but obviously uh, doesn't work well for the IOC. Uh, how, how is that impacting the decision? I, I think it's a big deal. And you think about it, if you're running an auction, you want as many bidders in the room as possible to bid that price up. And the IOC is really nervous about the fact that fewer and fewer cities are showing up. So Calgary is not alone, to be very clear. Calgary mm -hmm. is not alone in rejecting Olympic bids and having them go to a referendum where they're then defeated. Just in the last six years alone, I can rattle off a list of cities. Sion, which is in Switzerland, Innsbruck, Austria, Hamburg, Germany, Krakow, Poland, Munich, Germany, Davos, Switzerland. All of those cities just in the last six years have put their bids to referenda and they've been defeated in each and every one of those cities. So this is not a new trend. This is not something that, frankly, was that different in Calgary versus other cities. Uh, and the IOC is looking at this, and they're nervous. The last Winter Olympics bidding cycle for 2022, there were also only two bidders. That, those were Beijing, China, and Almaty, Kazakhstan, because all of the democracies dropped out of that process. In the 2024 Games, which was the one that Boston was going for in the summer, all of the cities dropped out except for Los Angeles and Paris. And the IOC took an unprecedented step and they essentially said at the last minute, we're going to award 2024 to Paris and 2028 to Los Angeles. Now, they touted that as this exceptional double bid where sort of everyone's a winner. But in fact, it's a response to them seeing that there's less and less interest in these games and fewer and fewer cities. And they wanted to lock in Los Angeles so they didn't have to conduct another auction that might fail entirely. Yeah. So the IOC is nervous. They're um, they're scared. They don't totally know what to do. And unfortunately, rather than embrace real change, they're mostly offering up these platitudes and window dressing that hasn't fundamentally changed or modified the way they think about it.
Now, when we look at recent Winter Olympics, I mean, you know, the 2018 Winter Olympics uh, ended up costing a lot more than, than initially, I think, people in South Korea had been told. I, I, I think we can presume that uh, Beijing is not going to, to hold back. We saw how, how they did the uh, Summer Olympics a decade ago. But I, by comparison, does this Italy 2026 bid at least seem a, a little more modest than those two? Yeah, I don't think so, unfortunately, for Italian taxpayers. Um, they're talking about it in the range of about $1.7 or $1.9 billion. And I think that it will easily go hundreds of millions of dollars over that cost. And in fact, the the, fo- the followers of these bids have already predicted that. They're already sort of expecting some chaos out of that process and that there will be overruns. And remember, the IOC's contribution is fixed. They do contribute some money, but then as those cost overruns rise, the IOC doesn't kick in its share, doesn't increase its share at all. All of that is covered by taxpayers. So this is one of those things that you might call the winner's curse, where for about a 24-hour period, you're excited that your city won the games, and then you sort of wake up the next day and you say, whoa, what did we get ourselves into? What kind of contract did we sign here? And you're looking ahead to seven or eight years of cost overruns, construction delays, more and more costs put on your city. Then again, you have a three-week party, which can be really fun. And then you've got decades of a hangover as you're paying off the debt for that three-week party. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's ironic that it's called Agenda 2020 because, it goes, of course, there's also going to be an Olympic Games in 2020 in Tokyo. Uh, and it's really shaping up, I, I think, so far, what we've been hearing to be uh, an awfully expensive Olympic Games. Yeah, so we're talking about multiple, multiple billions of dollars of cost overruns here. When Tokyo submitted its bid to the IOC back in 2013, they estimated that their games would cost $7.8 billion. The new figure that they're walking around with, and it could go higher, is $12.6 billion. So they're already about $5 billion in terms of their cost overrun. And again, we think it could be even more than that. And so this is nothing new, of course. The Olympics are one of the most expensive mega events or mega projects you can do. And Oxford University did a study on this, and they looked back at all of the files for all of the Olympics back to 1960. And they found that every single Olympics since 1960 has had a cost overrun, every single one. Yeah. So these are tremendously risky projects. Uh, indeed, it would appear to be the case. Uh, Christopher, appreciate the insight as always, and thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thank you, Rob. Always a pleasure. All right, take care. That is uh, Chris Dempsey, uh, prominent IOC critic, former co-chair, founder of uh, No Boston Olympics, co-author of the book No Boston Olympics, How and Why Smart Cities Are Passing on the Torch. So yes, I, I would concur that those are indeed smart cities. And uh, I think then we can put Calgary on that list. So I made the joke the other day on Twitter that uh, Italy, you know, the headline was Italy is getting the Olympic Games. My response was, well, thoughts and prayers. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think folks there, taxpayers in Italy should be worried. It's interesting that, that Stockholm really could have broke the mold. Stockholm was prepared to do what Calgary was, and Stockholm was prepared to do what Italy was, and Stockholm was prepared to do what virtually every other Olympic city wasn't prepared to do. And the IOC said, yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> Uh, we like doing things the old way, and uh, that's what Italy represents. So disappointing. I suppose we should always give credits when the right thing is done, even when the right thing is done belatedly. However, 
that doesn't take away from questions around why the right thing wasn't done in the first place. And when we're talking about Canadian soldiers, fallen Canadian soldiers, I mean, it raises the stakes a little bit, right? We expect that the Canadian forces, the Department of National Defense, is going to do right by those who serve, do right by the families of those who have died in service of their country. And certainly what happened just over a month ago fell well short of that. Uh, There was a a memorial set up, a cenotaph set up uh, to fallen Canadian soldiers in Afghanistan. It was once known as the Kandahar Airfield Cenotaph. However, it was placed inside the Department of National Defense, inside a restricted zone of the new military headquarters in Ottawa. So not only was it inaccessible to the families of these soldiers, inaccessible to members of the public, uh, these families weren't even given notice about this. Uh, So this was done not only behind closed doors, but essentially in secret. And now this became a big story, as you probably recall, and uh, the chief of defense staff eventually apologized for how this was handled. So we've learned now today that the Canadian military is going to publicly rededicate this memorial. There is going to be a ceremony this summer to rededicate the cenotaph. Well, somebody who's been following this story joins us on the line here this afternoon. David Poglesi is a reporter for the Ottawa Citizen, covers the Canadian forces. David, great to talk to you. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Uh, this really feels like, I mean, it was a, a fiasco in a lot of ways. I, I guess it's, uh, in terms of us doing the right thing here, finally, the, the, uh, the, the government on our behalf, I mean, it's, it's long overdue here, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this was a major, uh, this was seen as a major screw-up. Uh, you know, May 13th, they had this, uh, as you mentioned, this secret uh, dedication ceremony. Only the upper echelon of the Department of National Defense, Canadian Forces, was invited. You know, the Defense Minister, the Deputy Minister, Chief of Defense Staff General John Vance, they didn't issue a news release. Uh, you know, three days later, they send something out on Twitter. They never invited the families. Um, you know, so after this became known, people were very upset. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, Vance had to uh, apologize for how he uh, handled it. Mm-hmm. What is the background on this this memorial, the, the Kandahar Airfield Cenotaph, as it's known? Well, this uh, cenotaph was uh, was built uh, by Canadian Forces personnel and, and civilian uh, personnel at Kandahar Airfield. Uh, you know, starting in uh, and Afghan employees as well, uh, starting in uh, 2006. And it's got um, you know, it's a cenotaph with 190 plaques, uh, each uh, honoring Canadian Forces members who died, uh, as well as you know, you've got Foreign Affairs uh, official Glenn Barry who died in the IED exp- uh, attack. Uh, you've got Calgary Herald uh, journalist Michelle Lang, who also died in an- another IED attack. You've got a civilian who had, was working under contract for DND, and you've got uh, U.S. military personnel and a civilian who died while serving under Canadian command. So, you know, this cenotaph has all these plaques, and it was moved from Afghanistan after we pulled out, and. They have now reconstructed it at the uh, new Defense uh, Department uh, headquarters in Ottawa. Now, I, I can understand that within defense, um, within the, the headquarters of the DND, I mean, maybe there are going to be um, 
things that are not accessible to the public, but are meant to uh, maybe remind the people working there of, of what it is they're doing uh, to, to honor those who have, have sacrificed for this country. So I, it seems as though that was I, more or less the explanation, wasn't it, from DND, that, that they wanted something within the headquarters to remind the people who work there of, of those sacrifices. But obviously the way it was handled was not ideal. But do we have a, a, a good understanding, I guess, of why this decision was made in the first place? No. So as far as, you know, D&D or Canadian Forces uh, has never provided an explanation why they decided to delay the announcement for three days. And they haven't provided an explanation why they decided to limit the publicity other than to say, well, it was an official decision. Um, they haven't provided an explanation of why the families weren't invited. The other issue is, you know, they're saying that this is, they put it in this secure location at the new headquarters, but that wasn't the original recommendation from uh, this military working group that was looking at where this should have been put. So in 2011, this working group recommended that the Cenotaph be located on D&D property, but at Dow's Lake in Ottawa. So it's that's a, a very publicly accessible area in a high traffic area. A lot of tourists go down to Dow's Lake and stuff. So you would see, uh, you know, a lot of the members of the public would see this, this cenotaph. And that recommendation was overruled. We don't know why. Well, it's strange. And, and uh, one of your articles uh, on this, I think, from May 24th, and you, you relay this conversation you had with a public affairs right. officer. And it just, it really encapsulates how confusing and, and absurd, I guess, you could even argue that the response from the Canadian forces was about all of this, that they, they didn't announce it. Then they put something up on Facebook. And I, and I guess what, they, they called you to say, go yeah. read the Facebook post and, and write I, something about it? Yeah, I knew, no, I knew something was up when I got a, a call at 7.30 at night from a public affairs officer. I mean, they don't usually work that late. And, they, and he said, uh, well, we've got uh, this thing on social media about the dedication of the cenotaph. I said, okay, when was that? Today? No, no, three days ago. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, send me the press release and, I'll, and I'm going to write something up. And he said, well, there's no press release. I said, why? Well, it's an official decision. I said, who made who made the decision? Well, it's an official decision. I mean, as soon as the conversation went there, I knew there was, there was something fishy about what was going on. I still haven't really found out what it was, but uh, it's, there was something very unusual. Yeah. Well, I mean, in his apology, which happened around the same time, General Jonathan Vance uh, conceded that an apology is meaningless unless the wrong it seeks to address is mitigated. So we talked about the plans to make things right. So we're, we're getting more details now this week but i guess it, it, it was evident then that they were going to essentially do a, a do-over here exactly and so that will happen sometime in uh, mid-august uh, the letters have gone out to the families of the fallen uh, um, I, i'm hearing an august 17th date but that'll be confirmed over the next couple of days and uh, so we'll see you know how they proceed the other issue they're still facing is the cenotaph is in a secure uh, location at the bay or at the uh, headquarters so uh, we'll have to see how they try to make that open to the public the other problem as well is you know it's out in the west end of ottawa it's not exactly a well-traveled area so uh you know we'll see how much public uh you know the public views this
Indeed. Well, uh, I guess we'll get more details soon. Uh, David, we'll leave it there. Much more, OttawaCitizen.com. Thank you for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Take care. Uh, David Puglesi, reporter with the Ottawa Citizen, covers the Canadian Forces. Uh, so he's been following this story for some time. And yeah, I, I, this was, I, I think, a real uh, embarrassment for the Canadian Forces uh, that they would handle something like this in the manner in which they did. And it just it came across as a real slap in the face, certainly to the families uh, of these fallen soldiers. They, they were just completely left out of the loop, had no idea about this, and, and the, the, this memorial would be set up in an area where it was just completely inaccessible to them anyway. So, Jonathan Vance, to his credit, again, as mentioned, an apology is meaningless until the wrong it seeks to address is mitigated. It says, Canadians entrust us with their security and defense. Families of our fallen and our veterans entrust us with the honor of remembrance. Both are our sworn duty. We are a visible symbol around the world of what this great nation represents. And we constantly strive to be worthy of the support you give us. And we must return that support with professionalism and all we strive to do. So they're going to try to get it right this time, which is commendable. But how it became such a fiasco in the first place still remains a bit of a mystery. And it doesn't fill us with confidence that the next time something comes up like this, that they won't do the right thing right out of the gate instead of allowing it to become a massive controversy and only belatedly doing the right thing to try to make the controversy go away. Well, there's no secret. Governments are often in search of new sources of revenue and, you know, tax increases can be unpopular. People don't like seeing their taxes go up. How do you get new revenue if people don't want to pay more in taxes? Well, go after the rich. There aren't that many of them. And people tend not to like the rich anyway, so it's good politics, right? We'll tax the rich. We don't have to tax you. We'll just tax the rich. They get all that money anyway. They probably won't even notice. And governments have tried this. The federal liberals campaigned on this. I guess people liked it enough. They voted for them when the liberals took office. They created a new higher tax bracket for upper income earners. Uh, The Albert NDP did the same. But does that work in practice? Even if it is good politics, is it smart economic policy? And the answer appears to be no. That as simple as it sounds on paper, in reality, it's not quite doesn't quite work out that way. That you're not realizing the revenue you're expecting to, and in fact, in the longer term, can actually have more dire consequences. There's a new Fraser Institute study out today looking at this very question. Joining us to talk more about it is Finn Poshman. He's a resident scholar at the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. Finn, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Good to talk to you, Rob. You know, as I say, I mean, the, the federal liberals tried this. Uh, the previous Alberta government tried this. There's a perception maybe that, that this is an easy source of revenue. Tax the rich. The rich can afford it. And uh, easy money, no problem. But that's not quite how it works in practice, is it? Oh, uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, lots of governments try it, including the last few years uh, in Ontario and New Brunswick. And, and no one's had terribly good results. Uh, well, I'm not sure how you define good. Uh, the general idea seems to be, on the one hand, that uh, you can raise a lot of money uh, that you might not otherwise from high-income earners. In the past federal election, uh, revenue was intended to offset tax decreases for the for the middle class. And uh, clearly, the government... Uh, uh, the current government won the last federal election, and those sorts of things are can be very popular politically. Um, but 
uh, how big's the impact? The, uh, unsurprisingly, for for most people who work in economics, uh, they don't generate a lot of money. And uh, in fact, in the long haul, uh, they may well uh, depress income. In fact, our estimates say they did do depress economic activity, and eventually the federal government will lose money. Well, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, it, it might seem like smart politics, but if it's bad economic policy, I mean, that, that seems far more important. So maybe the perception is that there's unlikely to be much much response from the, the super rich because they're not even really going to notice this. But uh, obviously it, it does have an impact. So what, what is happening then? Why, why do we see um, the, the revenue side be, be so underwhelming? Well, the, the, this is such a great example of, of how things can uh, can turn out not so well. Uh, one, uh, the revenue increase or the tax increase was uh, part of the election campaign, and it was introduced federally or was announced uh, in fall 2015 uh, to take effect uh, in 2016. Uh, so first off, uh, everybody knows this is coming, and a lot of people, and not just the extraordinarily well-to-do, can adjust their affairs. So they would rec- they recognized more income in 2015 than uh, than otherwise, shifted some uh, some expenses from 2015 into 2016. Uh, lots of us have uh, businesses or uh, or uh, that allow us to change the timing of when we recognize income, we change the timing of capital gains, people respond in all kinds of ways. And uh, more broadly, uh, when you raise taxes on income, uh, then uh, you reduce the rewards to uh, recognize, accept recognizing capital gains, reduce the rewards to work. Uh, you don't get so much money out of that extra effort you might put in over the weekend, or you might well want to put on that, uh, that extra shift. And um, the the other thing, Rob, is that uh, while uh, you know we we talk about uh, high incomes in the one percent, uh, there were a lot of people at the time who were making more than two hundred thousand dollars a year in Alberta, and they're not there anymore. Well, and yeah, and 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 I think we we've, we've learned that the hard way. I mean, it, it, this study points out an interesting fact here that that even if in the short term there is some revenue gain, maybe not as much as as perhaps was initially expected, that over the long run we we see something else here, don't we? It's uh, it is an impressive thing. Now, uh, remember our our federal finance officials who who did the numbers for the government. Uh, they're not uh, they're not dumb, and they didn't head into the plan thinking that you know if you boosted taxes by X percent, you're just going to get X percent more revenue. Uh, so they they did an adjustment for the fact that people will respond, uh, but they didn't make any long term projections. And in the long haul, yeah, the uh, the growth rate of uh, of the economy, in particular the growth rate growth rate of taxable income, which is uh, the taxable income is the base on which uh, the government governments col- uh, collect uh, their income tax revenue, that slows. It slows to a lower number than otherwise, uh, simply because you're uh, you're leveling uh, higher higher taxes than before. So you get less revenue than if you had done nothing at all. Uh, you know, people might think this uh, this sort of conclusion is is contentious or uh, controversial, uh, but it's really not. Uh, it's it's pretty. Uh, these are pretty common numbers in in the economics world, and in the environmental world. Uh, you know, think about this, Rob. We're often told uh, that if you want less of something, you should tax it. If you want more of it, you should subsidize right. it. 
So federally, we, we say we want less uh, greenhouse gas emissions, so we're imposing a carbon dioxide tax or a CO2 emissions tax uh, true, because we believe it could be reduced emissions. So if we raise taxes on income, what does that say about what we want to do to income? Well, and I think it's also important to you know put the evidence out there and, and help people understand the real world implications of this because the, the, it seems like there's always going to be a voice calling for this, uh, especially when you talk about the rich or the you know the so-called ultra rich. They're a relatively small percentage of the population. It's pretty easy to to try to sell to everybody else. Hey, let them pay. We'll increase their taxes, and we don't have to increase your taxes. Uh, there, there's always going to be a voice, I, I suspect, in politics calling for this. So it, it does make it really important doesn't it for people to understand that there, there's no easy path here there's there's no free bag of revenue that's sitting there for governments to well, grab well that's right uh, and, uh, there's an old saying in tax rob goes uh, don't tax you don't tax me tax the man behind that tree <laughs> the, the rich man behind the tree and you know there are only so many rich folk and uh, they don't have to stand still uh, yeah, so you're right. It really is important to get the message out that uh, there's uh, there's no magic to this. Uh, you know, one of one of the ways, other ways to put it is, you know, you can. Uh, y- do you want to kill the goose that uh, lays the golden eggs, or or not? Uh, we have, you know, this is pretty clear that in the long haul, just trying to go after the the rich produces uh, economic pain for really not much gain. But we do have in Canada, yeah, I mean, the province is federal. We do have a progressive tax system. We do have higher rates for higher income earners. So the, the Liberals federally and other provinces have tried to see how far they, they can push that envelope. But do, do we know where that, that breaking point is? Well, there's no magic number. Uh, the uh, in, in, the, in the tax policy and the economic policy world, uh, the, you come to the general conclusion that high numbers are bad, and when the tax rate of the margin, you know, how much tax you pay out of your next dollar earned, uh, gets over 50%. In other words, you, get ho- you take home less than half of uh, what your uh, gross income was. Uh, that really starts to get uh, to, to have an impact, and the higher the rate goes, um, the bigger the impact is. It's kind of exponential. And yes, we do have a regressive rate system. As uh, as Canadian wages go up on average year over year, as uh, not not just owing to inflation, but owing to um, uh, real growth, real income growth. Uh, we, you know, this is what our growing economy or growing productivity does. You get pushed up through the tax system. So if you have a progressive rate, the tax take increases. So the tax take or the tax revenue increases all by itself, even if you don't uh, boost tax rates. Well, some important insight. People can read this study for themselves. It's up at FraserInstitute.org. Finn, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Always good to talk to you, Rob. All right, likewise, there you go. Finn Poshman, resident scholar of the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.